0: I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's acquisition headlines, and today we'll start out with Navy Acquisition Boss shifting programs to prep for Project Overmatch, Breaking Defense. It is my intent that all programs core to the naval operational architecture and the success of Project Overmatch will be aligned under PEO C-4I, according to a July 20 acquisition decision memorandum signed by Frederick Stefani. So... This one's interesting here. I would like to get your views. It seems like um, they're trying to consolidate all the kind of JADC2 project overmatch stuff for the Navy under C4ISR, a single organizational structure, but it still seems like this thing is going to touch a lot of programs. So I'll be interested to see how that kind of works out. Yeah,
1: I haven't seen the detailed Navy plans, so I don't know if they're going to try to keep their JADC2... I guess the one question would be is how limited are they going to keep their portion of c 2 Are they going to go are they going to go big with it kind of like the Air Force is where they're looking at much more than just C4I systems, right? There's a lot of embedded sensors and other platforms. There's a lot of infrastructure that that will play across the enterprise. There's there's a lot of hardware in the loop, so it's not just it's not just developing apps or coming up with better network solutions. It's going to be it's going to be, have to be a much broader thing. So, I suspect the Navy will probably have something similar to that. So, maybe this is okay as a first step to try to get just like the RCO got assigned the ABMS portfolio. So, maybe this is good as a first step, get their arms around some of the basic stuff, the networking and application kind of aspects. But, yeah, absolutely. There's no way, I think, if they try to say, I guess the one thing I didn't like is the fact that he was asking programs to say, yeah, tell me if anything that might touch a project overmatch, and I'm going to rip that away from you and give it to this other PO. Other PO. I, I think that would be a poor poor decision just because it's going to have to be more than just one PO that does this. And so maybe it's okay to assign a lead PO, but yeah, I probably would not try to rip every single program out from under various, various other POs. and try to cram them all into one. And ABMS is not doing that either. ABMS has some core functions being done by the RCO. It's being managed, but it's going to touch many other POs, and they're going to have to execute other aspects of uh, of ABMS.
0: And we saw that the uh, appropriations Committee wanted ABMS to spell out exactly who was participating under what monies. And I guess it's almost like a matrix approach to the budget process and organizational process there. I assume, yeah, that's probably what will also have to happen and PE more the lead, taking a lot of responsibility. The Navy just reorganized this well there at Navwar, where they broke out PEO Digital from C4I. And they're going to probably be handling a lot of that kind of infrastructure type stuff in the digital realm, at least. They're working on the cloud services and networking. So they'll have to definitely work with them. And then all the other guys that are going to be playing, IWS, Unmanned Systems, like all those guys are going to be playing PEO ships, of course. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it would be interesting. And it But this also raises the, one of the points that I'd like to say is PEO C4I would be actually an awesome budget portfolio for Congress to kind of experiment with. But potentially just putting JATC 2 on it also makes it, I don't know, potentially it's high priority enough to do such an experiment or pilot with, or potentially it's that brings too much scrutiny under its realm.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I'd like it as a pilot too. Hopefully they would, whatever pieces of or overmatch they get will be manageable. So it won't like overburden them. But yeah, no, it'd be a great portfolio. I love the idea of like having a digital
0: acquisition portfolio as a pilot. So here we go with a similar headline here. Lack of JETC to coordination across the services is recipe for disaster, analyst warns Air Force Magazine. Here's the quote, Todd Harrison, director of the center's Aerospace Security Project, and also a former acquisition talk guest, argued that DOD's current approach risks individual services, combatant commands, and all agencies developing multiple stovepipes networks that do not allow the kind of interoperability and resilience that would be possible with a more coordinated approach. Establishing a joint program office, Harrison argued, would ensure all efforts are properly funded and synchronized. And yeah, here's another interesting one um, that potentially could make sense under under what the Navy was doing with PEO, C4ISR. You just establish a single organization, go get it. That's the usual way Department of Defense works. You plan out some requirement. You've created a program office to go execute. And what do you think about this kind of coordination or centralization of functions for the JADC2 effort?
1: Yeah, I usually... Am- Usually I'm in agreement with Todd, I think like a lot of his papers, I think he usually hits on good things. I have to like violently disagree on this one. For one, right. When we talk about Jad c 2 if you look at the vision that the general crawl has, this is, it touches every platform, right? It's going to touch so many things uh, across the service. It's going to, it's going to be integrated into just a million different things. And I think we've proven, I think we've proven that we're not very good. One thing we're not very good at is developing something. And then trying to mandate that everybody takes it and integrates it into their platforms. Like we're, we tried to do that with GPS, the anti-jam solution. And it was really hard. Like it, we wound up figuring out that no, a bunch of things had to be modified. It didn't work. It was causing issues. And so we had to get smarter about it. And so I think this is one of those things where I think a joint PEO makes sense for certain things. I think for the ChemBio community, it made sense. It made sense like for JIDO for its very specialized mission, but I think jadc 2 is just way too big to assign to a a PEO. I think it's good that Joint Staff is taking more hands-on approach in terms of trying to make sure there are standards that apply to, that can be used across the, across the DOD. I think them having their hands in that and being part of that and keeping the services from getting crazy, like the Air Force going off and being too air centric or the Army going off and being too ground centric. I think that's the right, maybe the right balance and, and they're not gonna be able to do everything. So the services are gonna have to work together. But yeah, I think a joint PO would, do, would be, I think it would go awry in various ways. I, I don't think that would work.
0: Well, should the, I guess the joint staff, I guess under J6, should they get hugely enhanced funding to go do some of this standard creation? Because it seems that needs potentially, here's two views, right? Like one, you need these global standards. So you need someone at the top to mandate this thing. And then the question becomes, how does that person or the, the you know, group of individuals at the top know in advance what that right configuration will be? And then the other view is DARPA is working on this mission integration network control, the Mink thing that we talked about a few weeks ago. And that seems like an alternative, right? Like where you have these federated systems, but you're using virtualization and software defined networks to kind of stitch them together on the back end so to speak. I don't know. Any thoughts?
1: Yeah. I think, yeah, I think you're right that maybe they do need more resources. I I don't know situation. Joint staff does have a lot of people there, but I look to, I think there are some successes here with the unified data library that the space force is working on where you you can actually bring data into, into some central hubs where it's going to have to be shared with certain customers. There's going to be certain users of it. So I think in some ways there, there are smaller things that they can tackle. Yes, of course, moving towards a world where there's going to have to, where every single ship will be able to talk to every single aircraft flying seamlessly and every Intel cell will be able to share seamless intelligence, up-to-date intelligence with every platform. That, that's, that is going to take time. There's going to have to be a lot of thought put into that. So I, I think joint staffs. it's not so much that they're going, they need to mandate things, but I think it's that they need to work together with the services to say, okay, here's where things are not going to work maybe some cases they they do need to develop some standards or some of the data strategy, the UD data strategy mandates like an API, a common API kind of thing. So I don't know what the right solution is for all the various platforms that are going to be out there and and the different ways that they'll be upgraded to meet the JNC2 vision. But I think that coordination function that they play is very key. And that could be just as powerful as some joint PEO where they're trying to conquer world hunger under one office. I think that kind of office would just blow up to be like the F-35, where you have 2,500 people running in a million different directions, and then you still have to mandate a bunch of things down to the services, and then there's going to be a bunch of resistance points. So yeah, I think Joint Staff is right for right now. Maybe at some point in the future, something else needs to happen, but I think at this point.
0: Yeah, I I think we'll be following this kind of federated versus global standard kind of argument in JATSE too for quite a while. So moving on, General Electric Robot navigates uncharted terrain in U.S. Army Demo Defense News. General Electric's research lab set a little autonomous robot loose in a wooded course in upstate New York in a demonstration for the U.S. Army. Being able to essentially go into new space, address where you are, what you're looking at, and understand the uncertainty with which you're operating under and then behaving accordingly is essentially what we're driving towards with the SAR program. John Lizzie, GE Research Labs, Robotic Autonomy, tech leader, told Defense News. So yeah, they brought up a couple of interesting points on how AI might work when you have mapped terrain versus being able to figure it out on the fly and make the right courses of action. So it's interesting interesting stuff. And it's also interesting that General Electric is the one <laughs> that's, that's doing good stuff here. They, they kind of look at, they're not a defense traditional except for in, in the, I guess, the... Their primary thing is turbines and uh, jet engines. Here, they're moving into a new defense sector.
1: Yeah, it's good to see. Good to see. G, good to see GE get uh, get into a new space. And for so many years in the US, they were like the the go to company. So yeah, so they have a lot to offer. Yeah, I, it was interesting to me when I got exposed a little bit to the Army's autonomy program, ground vehicle program, and where they. I always assumed that the commercial sector had developed all the autonomy algorithms that would be needed for this kind of environment. I just assumed that with all the stuff with autonomous vehicles, that there would be things that would apply to this like more military unique solution. And yeah, I was really surprised that that was not the case. And I think the military really is driving the train here and GE is seeing that demand signal from the RCV program. And yeah, the fact that the military probably will be on the cutting edge of autonomous algorithms that are designed for more off-road environments that require that predictiveness that cars that are driving on a road with a, a paved highway with uh, nice lines in the road and stuff like that. Like it's just a totally different paradigm. So
0: yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. I think it just shows the kind of narrowness of AI. If it wasn't developed specifically for that need and they use all the maps and it's still problematic to some degree. It's, it's interesting. And we'll see, I think that one of the points will be, yeah. And then you're right. The department of defense will have to drive its own applications of AI Riding on commercial general advances, but I don't know if we'll ever get to a general AI that you can just stick it on from the commercial sector and make it go do military missions. Yeah. Next one we got USAF not looking at MQ Next as direct MQ 9 replacement outlines Reaper upgrades, Air Force Magazine. In the meantime, AFLCMC has laid out its timeline for an overall suite of updates for the MQ9 called M9 Multi Domain Operations or MBO configuration, which includes improved communications like a Link 16 data link, increased power, autonomous takeoff and landing, and eventually increased use of artificial intelligence to make the Reaper more relevant in a high end fight. Yeah. I think it makes sense here. They're just, maybe they don't have what the next generation of that thing is, or they, they think the platform is flexible enough just to upgrade it for their needs without necessarily going for a new platform design.
1: Yeah. I, I can't help but wonder, maybe it's a skeptic in me. I can't help wonder if it's a little bit of a, they're starting to see that Congress is is not going to let them just divest this platform without, without a fight. And so it's almost they're like, okay, we're going to be stuck with this thing. Let's let's upgrade it so it's at least mildly useful in the non-China fight. I'm a little skeptical about how useful it's going to be in the Russia fight either. Russia has some pretty pretty serious counter-IADS <laughs> capabilities. So I'm not sure how many Reapers will be flying over Russian airspace either. But yeah, it seems to me like a little bit of an attempt to improve the relevance of this platform. I yeah, I still wonder where where exactly it's going to see its use other than in those other those, those low-end fights, which we, we don't have as many of now that we're out of Iraq and Afghanistan. So yeah. yeah, I guess we'll see.
0: Yeah, I think they did say, it was like specifically for counterinsurgency type things, the lower-end fights is what they're looking at it for. But if you have a bunch of them, I guess that's, that's what we'll see, how effective a lot of these countermeasures to drones really are, or whether yeah. the proliferated thing is actually the next thing. It seems like they're going big, the Air Force might be going in two directions. They have the RQ, which is like bigger, faster, network networking, higher. And then they go, they're also going for maybe more of a swarm kind of thing with drones. But so maybe that middle realm is just like bait.
1: Yeah, maybe they could put some like enhanced engines on them at some point and then just, yeah, do some swarm experiments, real-world swarm experiments and see how it does. Yeah, I guess we'll see.
0: So Bell is changing the design for the U.S. Army's future attack recon aircraft from Defense News. Bell initially unveiled a ducted tail rotor design for its 360 Invictus, but now has opted to switch to an open tail rotor on the aircraft. The Army is interested in the balance between weight and speed and is considering capability parameters such as reaching 180 knots and weighing less than 14,000 pounds. So yeah, we saw in the early pictures that the ducted tails, I guess the rotor is embedded within the tail as opposed to hanging on the outside like you would normally see, such as on a Blackhawk or something like that. So they're changing the design here a little bit, a little bit late in the game. I thought it was pretty advanced, but it seems they just made the choice <laughs> to go along with that way, probably more cost-efficient, more commonality, and for many other reasons besides.
1: Yeah, I was a little surprised too, because it seemed as if there was some inherent advantage in that. If you looked at the Comanche, when the army was was doing the Comanche program, that also had that, that deducted tail rotor. And yeah, I thought that would survive in the new design. So it is interesting that they're going back to open tail. It seems like to me, they were probably trying to de-risk the program. They probably saw that the army's appetite for, for any kind of disruption was going to be, was going to be problematic. And so they really went back to the drawing board and was like, okay, how can we make this low, as low risk as possible? And since they had so many hours already on the open tail, they, they probably just, just, you know, said, okay, we'll go that route. But yeah, it, it is interesting because they, they talk later in the article about how the, this actually is better for the army given their updated requirements. So I don't know. I was a little bit confused about that, about what exactly changed to, to make it, to make this all of a sudden the, the way to go. Cause it seemed like they were pretty set before. So it's an interesting story. I guess we'll probably learn more as it goes on.
0: Yeah, it's probably, I think you're right. It's probably cost risk and just like program, programmatic uncertainty, even though the, the army seems to be behind it. How whether both programs in FVL will survive or not, that will be interesting to see because they're both mm-hmm. doing a pr- two pretty big competitions simultaneously. Speaking and of you
1: have the SoCOM, SoCOM too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that one. Yeah, we're going to see who they pick there. We weren't the biggest fans of a tilt rotor design, but or just any of them because it seemed. But you you could almost get that from the other services. That's what SoCOM does best. They just take with the other services, bought and then maybe modify it to their needs. So it would be weird to jump out ahead for them, it seems. Yeah. Anyway, so speaking of changes to a uh, form factor, the, the Navy says Constellation hull change won't affect internal design from banking defense. The Navy has chosen to elongate and widen the hull of his next generation Constellation class frigate relative to the parent design. In the early days of the frigate program, Navy officials repeatedly assured Congress that the program's use of a parent design would reduce risk of delay and cost overruns. Now, there's also arguing here that they'll basically be able to through 3d modeling and the like just use the same internal design with the the larger hull but again we have another kind of change in the design late in the program and not really too surprised considering like the number of requirements that the navy actually put on this program was actually pretty impressive when i was looking at the things that they were asking for so maybe the kind of mission package drove the larger hull rather than the hull design working towards the same, you know, insides. I'm not really sure.
1: Yeah. The only one thing that made me feel better about this was that it was actually based off of an existing uh, solution from uh, Fink and Terry. So yeah, the fact that they're uh, they're using at least a design that's hopefully been proven enough where they're not going to have kind of those LCS type risks would be a benefit. So yeah, that's the one thing I t- took away from here was... Yeah, maybe these changes are maybe it's a positive thing. And so maybe the Navy's trying to be a little smarter
0: about it and not have those LCS issues. So I guess we'll see. So the next one that we got here, aerospace startup gets 60 million from US Air Force to build hypersonic passenger plane, defense news. The US Air Force and several venture capital firms are making a $60 million investment in Hermes Corporation, a Georgia-based startup that wants to develop the first, the world's first reusable hypersonic aircraft. Ultimately, we want to have options within the commercial aircraft market for platforms that can be modified for enduring Air Force missions, such as senior leader transport, as well as mobility, ISR, and possibly other mission sets, said Brigadier General Jason Lindsay. And then here's a little bit more on that like detail from the 60 million, because it's interesting that wasn't just straight up from one program office. Jason Rathjeet, Reports from AF Ventures, Hermes joins our two 2020 cohort of 18 companies with the largest contract to date, 60 million, in an incredible example of public-private partnership co-funding emergent tech. Half of the funding came from government with 15 million from AF Ventures and half from the private sector. Nothing more is nothing and nothing is more, more deep tech than hypersonics. Right. So we got 30 million in investment from private sources for this company as well as 30 million from the government. And I guess this is one thing that you can smile at. There there are these examples of companies actually breaking in and potentially doing new things. I guess we'll just have to wait and see whether they do finalize their transition.
1: Yeah, it's always it's interesting to me that that some of these companies are even interested in accepting money from the military when there's so much private kind of private capital out there looking for these types of investments. So it is interesting. It seems like a really good idea because the potential for for applications for the air force is pretty huge. You could see this being used in future fighter jets. And they mentioned like VIP transportation and ISR and stuff like that. So it just seems like, yeah, if we can keep involvement with this, if we could help guide the technology a little bit, where it's more geared towards not just the commercial sector, but also maybe has those, some of those unique qualities that the military might need, then that would be a really huge win. It is interesting that, that the Air Force, what did they say? That it's actually going to be, uh, they're going to get a few prototypes out of it in the near term so that the Air Force is potentially going to see something, some, some real developments on this and have really hands-on. So it's not just it's not just funding it like a cyber thing and then it goes off and does whatever it is. It's actually, it looks like they're getting some real deliveries. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch, see where it goes.
0: Yeah, I I didn't quite understand that as well, because they said that there was three kind of milestones within the contract. And for three prototypes, there's no way that they're going to build three prototypes of these aircraft. It looked like three prototypes of an aircraft, and I'm not really sure how many engines they're going to be putting on that. But still, for $60 million, this is like a billion dollar effort. Someone, somewhere separately said, this is like going one centimeter in a journey around the earth, I think. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> I, I can't imagine that they're going to get all the way. Now, whether they get to some kind of intermediate testing phase, I think that makes sense. So like when SpaceX was doing their OTAs with milestone payments with NASA, they had many of these smaller milestones on the way to this huge technical objective. And this one's a huge technical objective and I'm glad the air force is interested and not just FWorks, but also some of the PEOs.
1: Yeah, I guess the one thing is, I wonder if uh, there's been so much research on this, right? Even going back to the days of the Concorde, like there's, there was always this idea of being able to go faster and faster with commercial jets. So I wonder if there's not like just a lot of disparate research that's been done. There hasn't been a company willing to step forward and actually try to make it a reality just because of, of all the challenges, even with supersonic flight. Maybe this company really was just had their, their finger on the right buttons to say, yeah, we can pull this research and maybe they're going to do this a little faster than what we're saying, just based on digital engineering and some of the, maybe leveraging some of the research that's already been done and stuff like that. And to me, it's really about the propulsion system. So I was definitely curious to see where they go with the propulsion system, because that's, uh, that's going to be, that's going to be the big game. I think they are dynamics and stuff like that. There's enough, probably enough research out there, enough materials design and stuff with other things that have been going on that they could probably leverage a lot of that. But yeah, yeah, this would be a big one.
0: Yeah. My understanding is they're buying a GE engine with a, and then they're going to outfit it with a Ramjet behind it. Okay, And so that's their plan. So it seems pretty low risk to some degree, but we'll see. I think it's just like an engineering challenge um, to get that going. And so I guess, yeah, go ahead.
1: I wonder if it's, I wonder if it's going to be hypersonic the entire time or just, it can fly, it can fly in excess of five times the speed of sound for, okay, here it goes. Uh, okay. So their measurement it looks like, is New York to Paris. So they would need that Ramjet to be able to last 90 minutes to get from New York to Paris. Okay. So that's okay. That's the goal there.
0: Okay. Interesting. Well, I, I don't have a good understanding of it, but once you get to that speed, now you're just sucking in air. So is there a problem to maintaining such a speed at, with a Ramjet? You would just burn a ton of fuel. And I think in general, they're... No, no, no. I think, don't you just turn off the the engine or like you you cycle down the engine and now the Ramjet is just sucking it in. I guess you'd need a sweet nose cone or something, some kind of like engineering design to make sure you get, you can suck it in fast enough, but...
1: Yeah, I won't pretend to be an expert. I I just thought that most of the Ramjets that have been used were usually meant for like smaller durations, like like on a missile and stuff like that. So yeah, to have it like a sustained... sustained like on a large aircraft churning out what would have to be a substantial amount of power for a passenger aircraft. I don't know how long large that passenger aircraft would be. I guess it could just be a few people, but yeah, if it's going to be like a 787 or something, yeah, that seemed like a much broader application of the scramjet, but yeah. Yeah. I guess we'll learn more if they're, they're modifying a GE engine and using some existing technology. Maybe they have a unique way of integrating it, making it all work together.
0: Yeah. So the next one here in the entry to the Department of Defense, DIU awards Anduril Industries contract for counter drone AI technologies from C4ISRnet. Five-year contract up to $99 million. The technology uses the company's lattice artificial intelligence operating system and a network of sensors to Autonomously detect, classify, and target targets, or track targets rather. Because the service will be buying counter UASs as a service, Android will be able to provide a range of systems based on particular threat profile instead of one size fits all models, says Matt Steckman. We can also f- focus on continuous development and continuous release of our software operating system, ensuring that the warfighter is always getting the best tech. So I, Andrel and DIE worked from prototype production in 18 months. So that's pretty quick. And so there's a couple of interesting things here, but I think the most interesting is not that they are scaling to a $99 million contract pretty quickly, but rather that they're buying it as, not that they're actually doing it and they might be buying it as a service.
1: Yeah, no, this was a game changer for me too. I cause. I've had conversations where how could the military use services more often, and so, yeah, there's a lot of services that we definitely should be using. Everyone should be using cloud and software development enterprise services and commercial space services, and you can you can think about all those different services. But I always assumed that when it came to combat combat functions, that would always be a little bit more hands off. So I think this is the first the first real test. It's coming out of DAU, so we'll see how many services I actually start to start using it, but. Yeah, it looks like, it looks like if this works, you could see some expansion and maybe some other military domains that wouldn't typically be considered a a normal service. There's so much, there's so much potential in the services space that, yeah, it's interesting to see this is going to be a good first step and maybe the proving ground for for moving forward.
0: Yeah, it'd be cool if uh, it could be treated almost like a GWAC and like all the services could just, (laughs) if they had money, just put it on that contract and throw like new services tasks to them for, I guess, integration, but then also doing it. It seems like if you're going to do counter UAS as a service, you can't really do it based on the number that you track and kill, right? <laughs> because I don't think you're going to have enough of those. <laughs> so it's got to be yeah. by time, right? <laughs> like an hour of CUAS service. I, I just don't, I, I wonder how it's going to work because it's definitely a commercial product, but like at what point are the, the bean counters like me in a previous life would have been coming in and saying, what are we, what are you paying for this? And what is the cost of it? Because it seems like they're saying we're going to get big margins on this counter UAS as a service, but we'll actually be funneling that back in in some undefined way towards continuous development and release of new capabilities of this service. And like, how do you, what's the profit range? Like, these are the questions that IG people always want to ask. I just hope that that doesn't derail this kind of like experimentation into as a service because it is the right model. And ultimately they probably will get a better product advancing faster if they are able to adopt this, but still use competition or something in order to give that signal to IGs and others that they're getting value for. Yeah. I think the bottom line will have to be like you probably would have done in
1: Cape is the bottom line will be is these services will have to be more cost-effective than if the services had to buy and operate those systems by itself. You know, there's a lot of, probably a lot of things you could, a lot of costs you could fold into that is the manpower for the military,
0: the different, the, the cost of the military member. But the, the problem with that is, and that's the way that they would always think about it. But the problem is that the decision-making on a lot of the technical attributes is actually now going to be in the hands of Andrew. So you have a completely different product. And I think that's the fundamental question, right? Like who is making the decisions on the product? Is it the kind of, is, is it the company themselves? or is it a government through a highly regulated bureaucratic process and so what do you mean on the
1: product you mean in terms of what what advances get added to it and things like that or
0: yeah yeah precisely like i would think that they would be using something like a lean methodology where they would be working with the customer to want to make sure that they're doing the right thing but it, i don't think that It's not like the contract of the C counter UAS as a service would probably specify all of these things that they would be doing in a continuous manner, right?
1: I have to imagine that, especially the way they talked about it as multiple configurations and not a one-size-fits-all, is they probably would have a basic configuration of, hey, we can provide you this coverage at this range. These are the maintenance things that we'll do. These are the operations that will support and blah, blah, blah. Probably, I imagine these contracts are be pretty detailed and what's provided and what's not. And then there'll be a lot of add-on packages where, oh, okay, you want to go after larger targets. Okay, that's an upgrade. And then as they add more features, I think it'll probably be a company decision about, okay, do you just add that to the basic configuration and give the government more value? Or do you create a new package and then try to sell that package as like an upgrade? I, I think there's probably a million ways you could do it. The company will probably be, this is where I think it's going to, the brass tax is going to be Is the company's going to be incentivized to continually upgrade and get, get more services sold and, and increase the, their share. But they're always going to have to be cognizant of that. If they reach that tipping point where it becomes, it's not viewed as cost-effective, then the services are just going to go buy their own equipment. So yeah, that'll be interesting to watch to see how this plays in. How many services jump on board? This is, I guess this is like a GWAC in a way it's like a mini GWAC that the services will be able to go to to buy this.
0: But yeah, I guess we'll be able to watch and see
1: how many actually go And
0: yeah, I didn't get that impression that like the serv- any of the services can, could jump on the contract, but maybe that's true. Say it's
1: worth up to 99 million. So I, the DIU yeah, doesn't have that much money. So I don't know if they're like, are they just going to fund it themselves? Or are they going to offer it? They say it's available across the military. I don't know. I got the sense that it would be like something they'd say, hey, services, we got this all set up for you. Come, come
0: use it. But- yeah, no, maybe
1: you're right. Maybe they're doing something internal.
0: Yeah, that would be that would be a great way to go about it, and then just up that ceiling, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but again, like the more that that you break out from the CUAS as a service and put it back into just straight up product development that is treated as these add-ons with or almost like engineering change orders or something like that, the more you do that, the more you're like, what am I getting for the service? Because the service is since this is mostly automated systems as negligible recurring costs, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So like where it's, I feel like the government is trying to like straddle this kind of world where in one sense with the primes is I'm just going to fund all the development and I'm going to pay for like the literal cost plus 10% or 15% profit on the production because I know what it costs. I get the cost accounting information. And then here it's the commercial side is they do all the product development, and if I like it, I pay them a price that the market will bear. But the government wants to be somewhere in the middle of that, and I don't know. We'll see if it's tenable.
1: But so the interesting one of the other interesting things Eric will be to watch is uh, there's a, we have those consumption based service pilots that are going on, which will inform to some extent how DoD handles services. But from a budget perspective, from an appropriation perspective, this one's going to be tricky because if more of the services more of the components to start to use these types of services is how are they funded? Typically, a service would use procurement money to go buy the equipment. Then they would fund O&M to support the equipment. They would use RDT&E for upgrades. There's that whole like appropriation process that at each lifecycle stage, when all of a sudden you're just buying a service, like, how do we fund this? Do you fund it with procurement? Do you fund it with O&M? Do you
0: fund it with RDT&E? It really is going
1: to be a paradigm shift if this starts to become more complex.
0: Yeah, and to the extent that you have more venture capital going after it, you would think that RDT&E is now being amortized through the price of operations and maintenance, and therefore the government would actually be doing a lot less later stage development. I, I guess it would still do s S&T, and but shift that over to operations and maintenance And that would be a weird, a weird kind of outcome. But I think that makes sense to an extent.
1: Or maybe there's an appropriation in the future. That's like a service appropriation that instead of getting into the nitty gritty of is this, are you procuring a service or are you maintaining? Are you funding maintenance? Instead of trying to break down those kind of things, maybe there's a service appropriation where it's, Hey, yeah, we go buy this thing that we need. There's not a, there's not an RDT and E component to it. Cause that's something that's already been built in. There's not a maintenance component to it. Cause you're always getting upgrades But yeah, it's, I don't know, maybe in the future, there's some room for that kind of, that kind of new budget appropriation.
0: Yeah. But then you also have the A8 for software and it's just what, like, how are we just going to go from one classification of linear life cycle appropriations to just like the types of things we buy? Or should the appropriations just be the organizations and objects of the expenditure? I don't know. That's obviously that's my view. <laughs> I don't
1: know. I'd love to see. I'd love to see the more like if appropriations just by okay, this is for S That's an appropriation because it's nice and discreet. And then it's okay. Here's an appropriation when we're doing like pr- program development. And then yeah, I don't know. You. I think we could come up with a set if Congress really wants appropriations and they don't just go to one color of money and just let us do what we need to do. You can come up with a set of appropriations where like they're discreet enough that they're not going to create these portfolio hurdles, where you can move money around when you need to. And So I don't know that,
0: that, that would be an interesting paper for you. <laughs> yeah. Who's moving the money around, I think is the ultimate question. Yes. Yeah. You'd want like some kind of organization to have that option to say, I'm going to go develop it or Oh, hey, look, they, they have something to offer. And I just want to buy it as a service. Like, how are they going to predict that multiple years into the future? Which one? they might actually be doing at the time of execution. You're just robbing them of the that type of option.
1: Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, especially if you have a program of record going on and you're like, oh, I'm about to go spend what I anticipate to be $100 million for this thing. Oh, and there's already a service while I was developing this thing. There's already a service that's going to do exactly the same thing. Why don't I cancel this program and just go use that service? Yeah, you're right. That would be a trade-off that the services. Is- as the budget is today, it would not be able to go do.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's move on here and stick with the uh, quote-unquote innovation realm. AI is letting this company build a new kind of defense contractor. From Fortune, incumbent defense contractors tend to think that their product of they think of their products as silos, each centered around a big piece of hardware designed to meet uh, a customer spec, often with bespoke software designed from scratch just for that product. That's not how Shield thinks. Shield AI CEO Brandon Sands tells me. To That end last week, the company announced it is buying Heron Systems, a small Virginia and Maryland based defense contractor that burst onto the scene last year when it won a series of simulated dogfights against the human fighter pilots, which of course was the alpha dogfight from DARPA. So, here we have Shield AI. Here they're saying they're taking an enterprise approach, they're not building specific systems. And I think this gets back to that as a service, right? You have a big kind of enterprise system going on, and then you have all the kind of applications emanating from it. It's hard to allocate specific costs to any one thing in a traditional sense, but they use that as a service methodology to amortize those overhead costs, really, and g costs of the enterprise stuff. But here's uh, Shield AI buying Heron Systems, so we're seeing some mergers and acquisition.
1: Yeah, Shield AI, I think, has really yeah proven themselves as... A, a company that can can actually you know build ai that has real military applications and something something they, they definitely decided that the the department of defense was going to be their one of their primary customers and so they've gone all in and yeah and this they're seems well like
0: capitalized it looks yeah like. yeah yeah
1: so i don't know this seems i like i like i'm a big fan of the vbat i've always thought since I saw that uh, six months ago, so ago, I thought that was uh, <laughs> fun, right? Shield yeah. AI
0: also signed an agreement to acquire Martin UAV, which created the VBAT unmanned aircraft, which is like a vertical takeoff and landing UAV. And so Shield AI wants to insert its own kind of software into the loop of that hardware system. And so there's a second one. So definitely well capitalized, kind of making two acquisitions off the bat of yeah. uh, pretty pretty good companies here, huh?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You, you combine, you combine all that, all that stuff. And I don't like the fact that their focus, I think there's a lot of drone companies
0: that there's a lot of drone
1: companies that can go and meet a mission. If you're like, if you're operating in a very permissive environment, you can throw a bunch of drones up there and do ISR, you can throw sensors on them. And so like that, that's been proven, right. We've been doing that with MT9s and stuff. And so this though, I think they've actually started to tackle a much, a much harder problem of how do you actually operate drones in a denied environment? Yeah, this company is really, I think, leading the edge and in, in integrating a bunch of different
0: things to meet the
1: threats that they, that they see the, the DoD has. So yeah, a lot of props.
0: Yeah, I'd be interested to see, like they got their autonomy software, Hivemind. It looks like they're going to probably on-ramp or integrate Heron's, I guess, simulate dogfighting yeah. technology. And then they can just like throw that on the VBAT as a platform. And now they have something like gelling together. It looks like they have a definite strategy. Of that. I don't know if that's the right one, but it seems like it might make sense.
1: Yeah. And they seem to have already read the circle there that they've already, I knew the Marine Corps was playing around with it. I didn't know they actually deployed it operationally, but yeah, it sounds like they've been doing a lot of work with SO with Southcom and uh, yeah, the Marine Corps is on board. I think this was their choice amongst a, a bunch of other different drones. And they say they have multiple international customers. So, yeah, I guess they do have some experience under their belt. And oh, the Navy, yeah, the Navy actually selected it too in April this year. Okay, and uh, over 13 other primes, prime competitors. So, yeah, this is you may see a lot of these a lot of these systems in the
0: near future. And by the way, the VBAT offers 11 hours of flight time, carries 25 pounds of payload, and can hover and stare 10 times longer than any of its competitors. It's logistical footprint fits into the bed of a pickup truck or inside a Blackhawk helicopter. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I love that load logistical footprint kind of thing uh, as well. But I'll just say the last thing on this. I love that you have a software company here buying the hardware company. That's a good
1: point. Yeah.
0: But that might be a a good uh, omen for the future. Next one we got lawmakers want DOD to explore tech valley of death problem from NextGov. the proposals to be reviewed at Wednesday's markup direct the defense secretary to carry out a five-year pilot to take science and technology activities into full-scale implement- implementation as well as to submit a report evaluating the barriers that prevent dod from scaling innovative tech so on the the senate armed services side we saw that they were calling for a pbbe reform commission and here on the house arm services side they're really looking just for a report out of the secretary of defense on a more narrow thing which is just how do i get some of these cool experimental stuff into full scale uh, development and implementation
1: yeah and i think yeah the pv1 I, I really hope i think that is a key piece i think even for you know this five year pilot that's geared towards the ST and how do we how do we scale up that one's going to have budget implications that's going to have to be a big piece of it is yeah, we wanted to do, we wanted to scale, but some of the barriers that DOD will very likely have to identify is programs didn't have the money budgeted to take something that was living in the BA4 world and all of a sudden needed uh life cycle funding in the current system and needed to become a program of record in order to truly scale. And that's, that's a huge, that's a huge delay. But yeah, I think invariably, even though there's a lot of other things that can be done in 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 the in this space to take s and actually scale it. Things like how do, how do the labs and the stoves, how when do they start talking? When do they start coordinating on transition? Do they work together on transition plans? Do they share expertise to help minimize some of the risks in the transition? So I think there's gonna be a lot of good stuff. Using software actually is like, is, is something the department's looking at about how do we use software as the bridge to take stuff from, from that lab world into a program of records. So yeah, I think there'll be a lot of interesting stuff in there, but budget, I still think will be a big, big, big piece of it.
0: Yeah, I feel like we've had this conversation a lot of times. It's like <laughs> when you try to solve the valley of death problem, yeah. You just push the problem off a little bit further or something like that, or you just shift where the problem is and you're not actually solving something unless you get towards, I guess, the full idea of budgeting and oversight and requirements, the full package, right? The adaptive yeah. acquisition for big A in the digital age, yep. as you guys put it. Yeah, you're right. Requirements, budget, and and the acquisition
1: processes all need to be aligned or otherwise yeah. Otherwise, it's just one of those things where like, why isn't the valley of death? Why are we able to do this? And so you have one leg of the stool that's, that's broken until you fix, they so have all three legs working.
0: Yeah. So Gertz is stepping down from Navy undersecretary role, retiring from government. Although Ooh. the Department of Navy acquisition community only had him a couple of years over his 30 year defense career, his leadership has made a big impact on the entire research development and acquisition enterprise. He's changed the culture, streamlined acquisition processes, and requirements and empower teams to operate with a sense of urgency. So that's unfortunate. Uh, also in the Navy news, Senate confirms Del Toro as SecNav, and I don't really know too much about him. But for Gertz, definitely he's been doing. He did amazing things at SoCOM. Was really a leader at in the Navy, and it'll be sad to see him go. And. Hopefully he keeps posting his like daily <laughs> music that he puts on LinkedIn all the time. Yeah. <laughs> everything he's listening to, he's putting up something on there. He has good taste too. Yeah. No, this is really sad. When, I
1: was always surprised to be honest when he took over as the Navy SE because I, I thought that of all the services, the Navy may have been the most inappropriate for him just because he was working SOCOM stuff or like low scale, very manageable. And then the Navy is everything is like these huge huge ships and just huge capital investments and stuff. So I, I just always was a little surprised that he went, he, he went in that direction, but yeah, he really did make a huge impact. And even with that, the challenges he had with like sub programs and carriers and all that stuff that sucked up all his time, he was really able to imbue the acquisition system with um, that SOCOM mentality. So yeah, huge loss. And it's really a shame. What's really sad is that some of these some of these uh, SAEs are leaving and there's nobody in their place. So they have to go down to multiple levels and you have all these acting. So yeah, really hope DOD and the, the white house can start to get some political appointees in there that can take these key roles. Cause it's been too
0: long. Let's stick with uh, a Navy topic here, but this side on the other side of the Pacific, China reportedly converted civilian ferries for amphibious assault operations from defense news. The report said that since 2019, the roll on roll off ferry bang chui. Dow, I might be saying that right, a 15,000 ton vessel owned and operated by a shipping ferry company has been fitted with modified ramp, able to launch and recover amphibious assault vehicles while offshore. The Jamestown report identifies 63 vessels that could be potentially converted, citing data published by the PLA's Military Transport University. So here's some more China scare. It looks like a pretty ambitious kind of effort. It seemed like some of the Navy folks were pretty... Um, skeptical as to whether they could figure out the challenges of doing roll on, roll off further out at sea, and they had some kind of mechanical arm that would co- go over. So it'll be interesting. This is just another one of those things as putting people on Taiwan invasion watch and accelerating probably timelines and and scare tactics. Yeah,
1: I think yeah, it's interesting. Your buddy Jordan. You know, I think there's a lot of different opinions about like the imminent you know threat of, of China invading Taiwan. And so it seems like on one side, you have folks who say, no, this can't be done because you would have to have a full scale invasion with troops and Taiwan has a lot of capabilities and they would be able to deter that. And then I've read on other fronts where you know, actually the Taiwan army is in disarray. And actually, if you took out the air force, they might be helpless and you could do this. And then sometimes you read about Xi Jinping, but this would not be in his interest. And then other times you hear it's, he's, he sounds like he's ready to do it like tomorrow. So yeah, I think this like this sort of adds a little bit more certainty to this. Some might be something in the more near term and maybe not so far out, or maybe China's just trying to get, get this capability. So they have it in their hip pocket if they have, if they see an opportunity. So yeah, hard to tell how scared to be, but definitely not good news for Taiwan.
0: Yeah, that's uh Definitely one that I think that there's a little bit of overhype sometimes this is, of course, they're going to be trying to do something like that. They would be negligent in their duties if they weren't preparing for something like that. But I guess, does that mean it's going to happen tomorrow or the next year, or as Davidson said, the next five years or six years? I don't know. That's, that's a good question. China could look and probably say the exact same things. Like they could cherry pick things that the US media is saying about their military and put that out there. I just saw recently... I don't have a source for it. I think it was NextGov. They had an article about the U.S. trying to use just like shipping containers, like jury rig them into kind of like carriers for at least drones or other types of aircraft or unmanned systems. And they could point at the same thing and be like, hey, America watch. Yeah,
1: there's the new, the new like foreign or what is is he? I don't think he's the ambassador, but he's like the foreign minister to the U.S. or something like yeah, he's, he's taken a lot of a softer stance and saying like, we need to counter the fact that America's everything. Every time America's points out some bad guy, it's always China and that there's like a, maybe an overstatement of the risk that China presents. So yeah, it is interesting that, yeah, if you flip the switch, you can also see them like every single bill. Now that it gets passed, is, this is anti-China. we have got to get after China. You can see them seeing similar things that we see. So
0: I guess one of my issues is like, they shouldn't be there shouldn't be all that kind of bellicose talk, but like the military should just be doing its job. And yeah. I, it's weird that like the community to some extent has to save a rattle with respect to China in order to get its own acquisition system in freaking order and actually doing what it should have been doing all along, which is just innovation and like changing the force structure and doing the most cost effective way of deterring adversaries. Because deterring, it's all about self-defense mostly, right? And deterrent, deterring rather than like, we're going to go invade or be like a hostile nation or be on the offensive. So I don't know, there just needs to be some kind of change in in, in attitude to some degree, but that doesn't necessarily correlate with a change in being soft or something like that.
1: Yeah. I I have to admit, I, do, I like the rhetoric more when it's around the economic piece, because What did they, what did we always say with Russia? It was like mutually assured destruction, a war with China, especially like a prolonged war would be global depression. It'd be mutually assured depression. There'd just be so much ramifications of that. So yeah, I, I really like the conversation to be much more around the military deterrence. Yes. Leave allies, leave, leave our neighbors alone, our partners, but, but much more the funding, the endless frontiers act which is like, yeah, China is an economic threat there. If we want to maintain our economic position, we're going to have to compete in with the things that they're developing and, and how they're their road and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I like, I much more like the argument to be in that domain because that's really where the threat will be is, is, is on the economic front. Cause if we lose that front, the, the military front becomes more, more tenuous.
0: Yeah. It's also, I don't know. I still tend to love China's already burned the bridge, but like Adam Smith always said, you should exhibit free trade even if others are not because ultimately they're pushing their own wealth onto you. They're like sacrificing their own welfare to give you cheaper stuff. Uh, The question is whether your country is flexible enough to be able to take that and allocate your people and resources to higher valued uses rather than what they're doing. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I guess the United States We like to think of it as like this paradigm of like economic freedom, but really there's a lot of burdensome things that kind of keep it back. And I think a lot of that is just human as well. It's hard to pick up and move somewhere, change your life. Someone told me like acquisition was just zero. What other skills do I have? (laughs) I guess I would have to go learn to code or something. (laughs) I learned a little bit analyst days, but I think uh, a lot of that R and VB stuff is gone.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we might have to update our skills a little bit to go... uh... To work at Google or
0: something. All right, so the last one we'll end on here. Air Force concludes latest hypersonic flight test at Air Force Ed- Edwards Air Force Base. Aerotech News, the Air Force c- conducted the second AGM a Air Launch Rapid Response, weapon or aero, booster flight test on July 28, 2021. Following the safe separation maneuvers, the rocket motor did not ignite. Objectives for the test included demonstrating safe release of the booster test vehicle from the B-52H and assessing booster performance. So the booster did not ignite. So they got one one out of their two objectives, right? <laughs> they released it safely from the B-52, but they were not probably able to assess the booster performance if the rocket motor did not ignite.
1: Yeah. This is
0: I I still like to go back to
1: when SpaceX first started off, they had a lot of failures and Look at the, like even the recent ones for their, for the really large rocket, like they've had, they had a number of, you know, issues on the pad. Things blew up, things didn't go as high as they wanted to. And so they learned stuff from each of them. So I think one of the things that you have to look at positively here is that all of the objectives that they actually did complete, they separated the thing from the aircraft, which they weren't able to do before. They, they demonstrated the full release sequence. They got GPS acquisition. They, d- they did the umbilical disconnect. Power, did power transfer to the missile. The missile did demonstrated fin operation, deconfliction maneuvers and all that stuff. So they, yeah, the rocket motor didn't ignore, but they did all of those safe separation maneuvers. So that's progress, right? That's something they didn't do before and that's burning down, burning down risks. So now the next time they know, okay, that, that all worked and now they can focus on that next step. So I don't know. I think this is just, this is exactly what prototyping does and the intent of it. And so I, I view this as a success, even though it didn't go as well as they they probably hoped.
0: I agree. How do you lay out milestones and funding and all this stuff if you're like, I, don't, I, did, I couldn't have known whether I would have actually, like potentially the rocket motor would ignite and we would have gotten more information and we would have been further along, right? But it didn't and we're not as far. So isn't that, a? I feel like this whole thing is just, like, okay, if we decide that we're going to be risk tolerant and allow this kind of thing, then you really have to take a look at your processes and say, are these things consistent with my desired end state? And so I think some of these systems like the hypersonics will get a pass because they're high priority or whatever it is. But I think there's a kind of general proposition out there that you can't coddle every kind of system, but all of these systems probably benefit from similar types of experimentation and operational use and testing and feedback and learning.
1: Yeah, I think this one does go to your point though about not the military, not hyper-focusing on one adversary, because that's essentially what we did do 10 years ago when we were developing hypersonics. We were making very good progress is we thought that the threat, because we didn't see China and Russia making much advances, we didn't publicly see it until all of a sudden one day they had a trade show and they showed all their hypersonic progress they had made. If we had kept with with that progress and just said yeah one day we'll have a, there'll be a threat and we'll need hypersonic so we should continue to progress this research and not just abandon it they wouldn't be under the accelerated timelines that arrow is on so yeah arrow is playing catch up and i think as part of that catch up you just have to assume that there's going to be a little bit more risk but this is this is an mta program it's a rapid prototyping and so it's it is meant to prototype and de-risk before you move into like full scale production and or developments, whatever type of development activities that need to be done. So yeah, I I still, I I hear what you're saying and you're right, they they could have learned more, but I still think given the timeline that they're under and given that the, how much they've achieved in the short amount of time, I think, yeah, I think this will be a success in the very near term.
0: Yeah, some of it is, it's not that they could have learned more, it's that what if they learned a whole bunch more and what if they (laughs) were like ready to like, going to get a lot more money and go into production (laughs) or something. Money just wouldn't have been there. And you could have got like an emergency supplemental or whatever it is. But I I recall in the last, in the 22 budget, they were looking at just like 200 million or something like that for, for the arrow. And they broke that out from a different hypersonic from that kind of like portfolio. Like it's almost going in the wrong direction because there needs to be that kind of optionality or at least ability to have the resources when it is available rather than presuming it's going to like, be developed on a certain timeline.
1: I don't know if they're out of money yet, though. I, I have to imagine. I don't know. I can't remember the exact number of tests they predicted, but I have to imagine that they have a series of tests. That would be, That's like any weapons program. The small diameter bomb, too, if you look at the history of that, they, my God, they had to go through years and years of testing because you know, they had really high requirements. And so to meet all that, they just, they had errors and they had to go fix them. And they had a lot of failures and stuff. Now it's, now it's in in good shape, but yeah, I, I don't know that they've run out of money. That would be a problem. I agree is if they have so many failures that it's way beyond the risk calculus that they had for the program, then I think you have to start saying, okay, what went wrong and what happened. But I think if this is generally, they plan to do 10 tests And these are just the first three of them and they can catch up and do all the things they need to in the future ones. Then I think you have to still consider it a success, even though they didn't maybe make the initial progress as as much as they wanted.
0: I guess my point is under product development, where there is uncertainty, you tend to prefer just a budget ceiling or a level of effort. And then you cycle within that as opposed to presuming that you will have the right increments ramp up, right ramp down and timelines. Because what what eventually happens with all these programs, and that was Chuck Spinney's uh, Defense Facts of Life, was that, and they had the plans reality mismatch. It's just like you ramp up to a level, and then you just like, I couldn't get there. I extended out at that level. And so you just get the, but you can't get more money. So you just plateau and just move on for a while until you eventually make it. So in either case, like you end up with the same result. It's just like whether it was planned for and optimized or whether it was just like through mistakes and errors.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right. And I think, I think that those errors, there should be some level of, of risk built into a program that is going to be challenged. And so hopefully you've built in some buffer so that you're, you can make some mistakes, but if you start to exceed, if you start to exceed that buffer and plateau, like you said, and not make, not be able to catch up to some of the progress, then I think you you have real problems, but here, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they're there yet they've only had two tests. They probably, I'm sure they have some buffer built in for risk given they're still in the MTA phase. And and so hopefully this isn't going to throw them completely off track and they'll be able to recover here in the the near future. But
0: yeah. So we'll just wrap up with a couple of headlines. It looks like CNO Gilday is bashing industry for lobbying for aircraft that <laughs> we don't need rather than focusing on shipbuilding and readiness. Uh, electronic attack system is to provide the Navy with more capabilities. This is the CWIP out of IWS. It's been outfitted on DDG-51 DDG destroyers, and they want Northrop Grumman to put that onto larger deck ships as well. And that's for electronic attack systems against uh, incoming missiles. BAE Systems raises their dividend, launches new buyback on strong outlook. So they raise their dividend and they're going to give back about nine, about 2% of their stock is going to be bought back. So defense, the quote here is defense has largely been unaffected by the pandemic with governments sticking to military and security commitments. And in some cases, raising them all good for BAE Systems. Raytheon and the Navy are finishing their SPY-6 testing at Wallops, so related to CWIP, but a different, this is the Aegis system that they will be putting on the the Aegis, of course, the Arleigh Burke-class destroyer, but they're also potentially looking at it for the new large unmanned surface vessel. And analysts are questioning the plausibility of this due to uh, the increased cost that would stem from the requirements for a larger hull to get that kind of power generation. So these radars here for ballistic missile defense really suck a ton of power. And so Arlie Burke has had some issues with that, but I think figure it out. And so we'll see if they can do it on the large unmanned surface vessel as well. And the last one we'll talk here is Lockheed's F-35A could face the first price in year as inflation bite. That's all we got. Anything on that one?
1: Yeah, the only thing I just wanted to hit on the CNO Gilday's thing. I think that's I think that's really an important point because in these times when you know all the budget stuff that we've looked at, there are clear trade-offs, right? Of capacity, current capacity for future capability. And that is just the fundamental trade-off that DOD is going through right now is yes, we have to get rid of some legacy platforms in order to make those key investments and in future platforms for, for the near peer fight. And having contractors defend their systems and put millions of dollars in lobbying to to keep platforms that they know themselves are not going to be relevant is really malpractice. And so I think it's good to hear good to hear him say that. I think I think more leaders need to make that case and and call that out. Yeah. Anyway, I just want to say good there and uh, yeah, good on BAE Systems and Raytheon for all that. Good work here.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, that's a good way to wrap it up. Thanks for uh, joining us, Matt McGregor. We'll talk to you next week. All right. Thanks, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again. And until next time.